I think the year was 1998. I was 21 years old, and I had signed up for a class called Philippians, which was going to be taught by Professor Glenn Miller. Glenn Miller was also a pastor. He was also a a basketball coach. He was also a missionary to Zimbabwe, Africa. And by the end of that semester, uh, Professor Miller had become my favorite professor. And the book of Philippians had become my favorite book in the New Testament of the Bible. Joy, he would say. Joy. The theme of Paul's letter to the Philippians is joy. I can still hear him saying that. I can still see him saying that joyfully. And it is true. The book of Philippians is about joy. In fact, over 20 times in this letter, over 20 times Paul uses the word joy or words like it. Paul is full of joy. If you've read anything that Paul has written, you know that Paul is full of joy, and he always wants his readers, those he loves, to also be full of joy. It's one of the reasons that he writes. Therefore, the main purpose of this letter, of this book of Philippians, the main purpose is to encourage the Philippians to grow as Christians, to mature as Christians, to develop as Christians, because as they grow up as Christians, their joy will increase. As you become a Christian, and as you grow as a Christian, the Bible tells us Christians are like trees. They grow. As you grow as a Christian, your joy will also grow. So the book of Philippians is not a, a long letter that Paul writes. You can look and see here. It's not a long letter, but it's a very full letter. Translated into English, it's about 2,100 words. In fact, if you were to copy and paste, which I did, if you were to copy and paste it into a Word document, double-sided, it'd be about two pages long. Two pages long. But in just a couple of pages... We have some of the most memorable sentences ever written by the Apostle Paul. I mean, even if you don't have these verses memorized, if you've been a Christian for 10 years, they are familiar to you. Words like this. Let me me quote some sentences from the book of Philippians. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's in here. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's in here. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Also in Philippians. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. It's in this book. 
Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's a part of Paul's letter to the Philippians. My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's in here. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Also in this book, Philippians is like Paul's greatest hits. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And every Christian or sort of Christian athlete's favorite I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. It's been shortened now. Now it's just, I can do all things. So we've got the privilege this morning of reading Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Please turn there with me. If you're using one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you, you'll find it on page 636. If you're here, you're visiting, and you didn't bring a Bible, we would love for you to read along with us. We'd like your eyes on the page. So grab one of those Bibles. You'll find Philippians 1 on page 636. This is the opening of Paul's letter. It is his greeting. And there are four distinct parts. And so this sermon will have four distinct parts. Part 1, Paul and Timothy. Part 2, the saints at Philippi. Part three, the overseers and the deacons. Part four, the pastoral blessing. Before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Please bow your heads with me. Our Father in heaven, we count it a privilege to have these words on our lap today. And we ask that you would take them from our laps to our minds and to our hearts that you would ignite our hearts for you, that you would instruct our minds about you, and that you would incline our wills to love and obey you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, part one, Paul and Timothy. Paul is the author of this letter, and Timothy is with him. Who's Timothy? Timothy is younger, and he is like a son to Paul. Timothy is like a son to Paul. Paul met Timothy years ago. He met Timothy and Timothy's mother and grandmother. His father was not around. Paul was impressed by Timothy, impressed by his maturity, maybe his abilities. And so he asked mom and grandma if it would be okay if Timothy came along with him so that he could train him up to be a pastor. And since then, Paul has been doing just that. Timothy is still with him by his side. Paul, who is the author of this book, we'll talk more about him now. Paul is a pastor. He is a preacher. He's a missionary. Thirty years, though, before this, he was none of those things. Just 30 years ago, he was a persecutor of Christians, not a pastor of Christians. 
He was, in fact, a murderer of Christians, not a missionary for Christians. He arrested God's people. He persecuted God's people. He oversaw the murder of God's people. He did believe in God, but he rejected Jesus as God's son and man's Messiah. So he did what he did out of, he thought, devotion to God, but he was rejecting Jesus as God's son, rejecting Jesus as man's Messiah. And all of that changed in one afternoon. Paul was on his way to the city of Damascus. He had official papers that were going to give him the authority to arrest believers there. And on his way, on the road to Damascus, he was met by Jesus. The resurrected Jesus came to call Paul to himself and to his ministry. And Paul was completely changed. So since then, roughly 30 years before Paul is writing this letter, he has traveled extensively, preaching the gospel and planting churches is basically what he's been doing. He's been preaching the gospel and planting churches, and that has not gone well for him physically. That was not a safe thing to do. It's a relatively safe thing to do in America today. I wasn't concerned for my safety when I decided that I wanted to be a pastor or preach the gospel or plant churches. For Paul, it was very dangerous. He actually recounts a lot of it if you want to read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. He looks back and shares just how physically costly his ministry has been. He was whipped five times. He was beaten with rods three times. He was shipwrecked. Three times he was stoned, which means he had stones thrown at him in order to kill him. He's thrown in jail over and over, and he's almost been killed on several occasions. It went rough for him physically. He went on three separate missionary journeys, covering ground all over Europe and all over ages, going from city to city, one of which was Philippi. One of the cities Paul ended up in was Philippi, and there Paul planted his very first church. In fact, it was the very first Christian church in Europe. You can read about it in Acts chapter 16. If you were to read about it in Acts chapter 16, you would find that the way this happened was through a series of very unusual and extraordinary circumstances. Paul ended up in Philippi. He was very unusually and extraordinary led to Philippi, which was in, at the time, Macedonia, or what we would call today Greece. The city was founded over a century before that by Alexander the Great's father, Philip. It was named after himself. It had been since, by the time Paul gets there, it had been conquered by Rome. It was now a Roman colony. It was actually called Little Rome. In other words, the citizens of this Roman colony enjoyed many freedoms, including freedom from much taxation. 
which is why a lot of Roman veterans who were retired settled in the city of Philippi. So Paul went to this town, which had zero believers. There were no Christians when Paul arrived on the scene. There were very few Jews, which is what Paul was exclusively before he became a Christian. Very few, which meant there was no synagogue, there was no place of worship for Jews, which is typically the first place Paul would go when he came into a city. He would go to the Jewish synagogue where they shared in common the Old Testament of the Bible, where they believed what he once believed only, and he would begin reasoning with them and teaching them and showing them how Jesus Christ was, in fact, the rescuer promised in the Old Testament of the Bible. Well, there's no synagogue in Philippi. So instead, he went down to the river. He went down to the river, and there he found the women of the town, and he began preaching to the women of the town. And they listened to Paul. These women who were at the river listened to Paul, and God, we're told in Acts chapter 16, opened the heart of one woman in particular. Her name was Lydia. God opened her heart to receive the message of Paul, the gospel, the good news that Paul was bringing. Her entire family heard the gospel. Her entire family believed the gospel. And Lydia and her entire family were baptized. And that was the beginning of the church in Philippi. Zero Christians. Paul shares the gospel with some women. One woman in particular. Her name was Lydia. God opened her heart to receive the message of Paul. She believed the gospel. Paul shared this same gospel with her family. Her entire family believed this gospel. They were baptized, and that was the beginning of the church in Philippi. There was one more significant convert in this city. I wonder how long ago you read the story. He was a prison guard. These are two very unlikely first converts to start a church, by the way. He was a prison guard. And his conversion came about like this. As Paul was moving throughout the town and preaching, there was a young girl who was possessed by an evil spirit. And this young girl that was possessed by this evil spirit was somehow enabled by this spirit to do and say some kooky things that brought her owners, she had owners, a lot of money. So she was of great value to her owners as she was enabled by this evil spirit. We're not given a lot of details to say and to do some very strange things that apparently people were willing to pay money to see and they were willing to pay money to hear. Well, she's following Paul and his companion Silas around. And she's not really saying anything bad, at least that we're told. She's actually being enabled by this evil spirit, I suppose, to know exactly who Paul was and that he was there and that he was from God and that he was presenting the gospel. Well, the scriptures tell us that Paul grew very annoyed by her. That's the word that we're told. He was just annoyed by her. He just wanted her to shut up. 
And she's following him around, and he finally gets fed up. And as he's fed up, he casts this evil spirit out of her. Enough. Cast the evil spirit out of her. She is now spiritually better off. She's spiritually healthy, but she's no longer valuable to her owners. A side note, when someone becomes a Christian, they often lose their value in this world. But they actually gain all their value in Christ. As she was changed, her owners were upset by this. They rallied the town. They attacked Paul and Silas had them thrown in jail that night in the middle of the night as Paul and Silas were singing, because that's what you do in jail. God sent an earthquake. God sent an earthquake in the middle of the night. They were miraculously freed from jail, which got the jailer's attention. It was like the introduction to their sermon. They preached the gospel. They preached the gospel to this prison guard, to the jailer. They preached the gospel then at his invitation, to his family. And he, like Lydia and her family, he and his family also believed this gospel. They were also baptized. And that was it. That was Paul's initial ministry in Philippi. It doesn't sound like he was there very long. They came to a city where no one knew the gospel of Jesus Christ. They preached and one woman... And her family believed, and one man and his family believed, and then they left. Paul keeps in touch with them as the church grows, maybe visits a couple of times. And then ten years later, after the church had grown significantly, Paul writes this letter to them. Look again at verse 1 with me. How does Paul describe himself? How does Paul describe himself? Does he describe himself as the man, the great apostle, the great missionary, the great preacher to the Gentiles, the great pastor, maybe ways that you and I would refer to him? No. He says, what does he say? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. The Greek word he uses, doulos, actually means slave. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. When Paul calls himself a servant of Christ... He means to say that he is owned by Jesus. He says at the very beginning of his letter, identifying himself as a slave of Jesus. In Paul's mind, the life that he has, the life that he lives, does not belong to him. It's not his. He is owned. That is a foreign concept to us, and rightly so. 
Paul, when he thinks of his life, thinks that it is owned by Jesus. It does not belong to him. He lives for Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. Listen. For the love of Christ controls us. Controls us. What is it that controls the Christian? You are controlled by Jesus. He is not doing this as a puppet master, pulling the strings. He's not coercing you. He's not controlling you in that way. He's controlling you by loving you. It is the love of Christ that controls us because we have concluded this, that one, that is Jesus, has died for all, therefore all have died, and He died for all that those... These are Christians now. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Who do you live for? Who do you belong to? Do you say, I don't belong to anybody? Do you belong to Christ? Who do you live for? I know it comes naturally. I know it comes naturally for me. Who do you live for? Do you say, I live for myself. Do you say, sounds better, I live for others. Do you live for Christ? Who do you obey? Who do you serve? This is not, when Paul calls himself a servant of Christ, this is not a title. This is a reflection of his heart's desire. This is his heart's desire. It's as if he's saying, I am gladly a slave. I am gladly owned and cared for by Christ. I gladly obey and serve him. And then as he would write to the Corinthians... He no longer lives for himself, but for him who for his sake died and was raised. Let's move on to part two. Who is Paul writing this letter to? Let's read verse one again. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi. Who is Paul writing this letter to the saints? That's who Paul is writing this letter to. Well, who are they? Who are the saints? 
These must be the best Christians. There's the Christians, and then there's the saints. These are super Christians. You've said things before, I'm sure, like, I'm no saint. Maybe these are the super Christians. Maybe these are the elders. Maybe these are ministry leaders. Maybe these are teachers. Maybe these are the most mature in the church. They're the best ones. The best. They're there early. They stay late. They serve gladly. They give everything they have. They're an encouragement to all who are around them. Ah, yes. They are our saints. <laughs> That's not who Paul means. It's believers. It's Christians. A Christian is a saint. A believer is a saint. This is interesting. Did you know that Paul never in all his writing uses the term Christian, the term that we use to address the people of God? Not once in all of his writing does Paul ever use the term Christian, the term that we generally use, when he is addressing the people of God. Did you know the term Christian is only three times in the entire New Testament? By and large, this word, this word is how believers referred to one another. Not as Christians, not as believers, but as saints. So we might say, rightly, I am a Christian. We might say, I am a believer. Or we want to sound cooler, I am a follower of Christ. We want to sound really cool, I am the follower of the way. <laughs> we might say things like this, we have different ways, right? We know what we mean by that. We have different ways to signal who we are in relation to Jesus. But Paul would say, you're a saint. Think about this with me. Paul would not first say, you're a Christian, you're a believer, you're a follower of Christ. Paul would say, you are a saint. Look around you this morning. You are surrounded by the saints of God. So what is a saint? Isn't a saint an extraordinary believer who has left a lasting mark on the church and now gets a day on the calendar, maybe a stained glass, maybe some prayers, maybe a statue? They are worthy, maybe, of greater honor. No, the word translated here, aios, means holy one. What is a saint? A saint is a 
Holy One. In fact, the words holy and saint and sanctification all come from the same Greek word. So when I say saint and holy and justification or sanctification in English, those obviously sound very different. But if you were to read them in the original language, they would sound very similar. A Christian is a holy one. What does the word holy mean? Holy means to be cut off. It means to be set apart. A saint, then. A saint is someone who has been set apart by God for God. And Christian, that is what you are. A saint is someone who has not, this is important, who has not done something to themselves. A saint is someone whom God has called and set apart for himself. That's what a saint is. And according to Paul's words, according to God's word, a Christian is a saint. We're all saints. If you are here this morning and you are a Christian, that is exactly what you are. So you might refer to one of your friends here in church tomorrow or in this week or maybe your husband or your wife. This morning I might say, good morning, St. Kristen. That would be a good thing to say. She'd probably think it was kind of cheesy and corny and feel pretty awkward for me, I think. But it's true. She is a saint. I am a saint. We have been set apart by God and for God. This afternoon, if someone asks you, what would you do this morning? How's your day going? Go ahead, do it. You'll go to Trader Joe's, and they'll be checking you out, and they'll talk to you so much and ask you so many questions. You're like, I just want to buy my groceries and go home. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. But they're going to ask you all kinds of questions. And if you're addressed, they're going to say, what did you do this morning? And you could say, well, I was gathered with a couple hundred saints. <laughs> Depending on their background, they're going to think all sorts of thoughts. But what you would be saying would be true. So, yes, you are a believer. Yes, you are a Christian, which means little Christ. You are a believer. You are a Christian. We know that you follow Christ. But there is, listen, why are we belaboring this? There is something missing in those titles. They're great titles. But there is something missing. They all refer to what you have done. They all refer to what you have done. You have believed. You imitate Christ. You follow Him. But why do you? 
Why do you believe and he or she doesn't believe? Why do you follow Christ and they don't follow Christ? Why do you want to imitate Christ and someone else does not want to imitate Christ? And the answer is that God has done something to you. God has done something to you. God has changed you. He has set you apart. He has made you a saint. So you might ask a question like, which came first, chicken or the egg? (laughs) Which came first, the saint or the belief? That's actually a far more theological question than we might realize. Which came first, the saint or the belief? And the answer is the saint. God set you apart. He made you a saint. And you started doing what saints do. You believed. You loved Christ. You wanted to imitate Him. You wanted to follow Him. And if you're a Christian today, this is true for you. Before we move on to our third part, the the next few words are very important. Look with me. There's just two tiny little prepositions. I hope one of the things that happens for you when you listen consistently to expository preaching, that's what this kind of preaching is, is that you begin to learn that Wow, every word is important in God's word. Not every word that I write, not every word that you write, but when God writes it, every word is important. So it's just two tiny little prepositions here, and they're so important, the word in and the word at. Look at those two words with me, the word in and the word at. Let me read the verse again. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi, which means that these saints were in two places at once. And so are you all the time. They were in two places at once. First, they were in Christ. They were in union with Christ. They had a personal relationship with Christ. They were positionally in Christ. And so everything that belonged to Jesus belonged to them. And this speaks of their heavenly citizenship. They were in Christ. But they were also at Philippi. They were also Roman citizens. Where are you this morning? Oh, many of you are in two places at once. You are in Christ. And you are at Roseville. You have a heavenly citizenship and you have an earthly citizenship. In just a few words in the beginning of Paul's letter, do you see that he is building up his readers? 
Just a few words we looked at. He is building them up. He is reminding them of who they are. He's reminding us of who we are. These are not throwaway words. They never are. Okay, among the saints are two other groups. Let's move on to part three. Verse one again, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Part three, overseers and deacons. An overseer is an elder or pastor or a shepherd or a bishop. Those are different words used synonymously in the New Testament to describe one thing. You can see that in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 and 7. You can see it in 1 Peter chapter 5. You can see it in Acts chapter 20. They are, the overseers are, the male leaders of the church. Is what an elder is. And they are leading... Think about this in light of the sermon series we just concluded. They are leading by the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. They are leading by gladly assuming sacrificial responsibility, much like a husband would do for his own family. The terms elder and bishop refer to the actual position or office while the terms overseer and shepherd refer to the ministry of that position. Deacons. The next group he points out are deacons. They are mentioned second because deacons really serve the overseers. It is their role. They serve the church by serving the elders. Overseers are able to oversee Because deacons are underseeing. They are pastoral assistants who take responsibility for many practical matters within the church so that overseers are freed up for prayer and ministry of the word. Where elders lead primarily with words, deacons lead primarily with their works. Where elders lead primarily with their words, deacons lead primarily with their work. So that's what overseers are. That's what deacons are. But now here's the significant thing to see about them in Paul's greeting. Look with me. When are they mentioned? I mean, they are. Paul is the one who makes this doctrine of church leadership clear. They are official leaders in the church. In that sense, they are out in front of the church. They are official leaders, but are they mentioned first? They're not mentioned first. They're actually mentioned last. Why? Think. Why? I think they're mentioned last because at the end of the day, 
They are merely, what does Paul call himself? Servants. In other words, if they were good elders and deacons, they weren't offended by this. What? He didn't stop the letter at the very beginning. Are you reading that backwards? <laughs> Shouldn't we be the top? But think about it. Think about it. What's better, being an elder, being a leader, or being a saint? If you could be one of those, what would you be? A saint. Being an officer in the church is not their highest and most glorious calling. Being a saint of God is. That's my highest and most glorious calling. It's not being a pastor, though I love being a pastor. I count it a privilege and an honor to be a pastor. I think it's the greatest job, if you would call it that, in the world. There's nothing I would rather do. And you all, specifically in this church, make it a blessing and a privilege. But that's not my most glorious calling. That's not my highest calling. My highest calling is the same calling you have. And that is that we have been called and set apart by God and for God as a saint now of God. That we are the holy ones of God. Okay, finally, Paul formally greets the saints at Philippi with these words in verse 2, which bring us to our fourth and final part. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We might call this the pastoral blessing. What does Paul want for them? He summarizes it here. What does Paul want for those people he dearly loves? What do you want for the people you dearly love? Grace. Peace. Those you love dearly, you want them to have the grace of God. You want them to know the grace of God. You want them to have the peace of God. You want them to know the peace of God. This is not peace with God. That's not what he's praying. It's not what he's wishing. It's not what he's asking. It isn't peace with God as if these people still needed to be reconciled to God. That is what some of you here today do need. You're not at peace with God. Or you think that you're at peace with God, but God is not at peace with you. You have not accepted that you are a sinner before God. You have not accepted that there is nothing that you could possibly do to earn your way into God's presence or earn your way into God's favor or earn your way into heaven or earn your way into God's kingdom. You have not accepted that yet. Or you've accepted that, but you haven't trusted Jesus as the one to save you, to redeem you, 
and to reconcile you to God. But Paul is writing to saints, remember. They've been reconciled to God. They are the holy ones. This is not peace with God. This is peace from God. This is grace from God. Let's look at each of those. First, grace from God. Grace to you, he says. It's not just a radio program. Saints, this is what this means. Saints, God has been gracious to us. We have received God's grace. All of us who are here today and are saints, we have received God's grace. He has shown us undeserved favor. Every one of us. He has chosen you. He has sent His Son to die for you. He has raised Him back to life for you. He has sent His Holy Spirit to dwell in your heart. He has empowered you and enabled you to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. And none of those are things that you or I deserve. That's not why we've received them. It's been undeserved. It's a gift. God has no doubt about it been gracious to us. But here's the question, and I'll ask it a hundred different ways. How do you actually experience this grace from God? Which, by the way, leads to joy. How do you know this grace? How do you experience this favor of God? How do you get more of it? Do we know how God's grace gets to our mind and gets to our heart? Do you know how to do what Psalm 34, 8 tells you to do? Taste and see that the Lord is good. How do I taste and see that the Lord is good? How do I experience His grace? How do I experience His favor? Do you know which wells to drink from? Do you know the paths to the gold in the mountains? Do you know where the headwaters of grace are? There are pipelines of this grace. There are fountains of this grace. There are pathways of this grace. There are means by which you will experience this grace and favor of God. Do you know how God's grace gets to your mind and to your heart? Do you know what things to do? We love things to do as Americans. Do you know what things to do that will put yourself in a position to receive God's grace over and over and over, which will lead to your joy. Do you know how to do that? We're not talking about good habits here. This is more than good habits. 
These are more than spiritual disciplines. I personally don't like that term. These are more than spiritual disciplines. These are more than spiritual duties. These are more than boxes that you check off a list. These are not things that are for taking pride in. These are the ways you get to Him. It's how His grace gets in your mind and gets in your heart and gets in your soul and changes you and transforms you and conforms you and renews your mind. Wow. What's the conference? What's the event? What's the book? Who's the guru? Who's the teacher? Who's the pastor? What station are they on? Do they have DVDs? What's the teaching series? Where's that church? What's the trick? What is the secret? Tell me. Are you ready? It is reading the Bible. It is praying to God. It is worshiping with His people. It is fellowshipping with His people. It is hearing His Word preached. Doesn't that all sound a lot more important now? It's more important than a good habit. It's more important than a discipline you need to have and a duty you need to have. It's more important than something you check off a list. And you wonder where the joy is. And you wonder where the grace is. And you wonder where the peace is. And some of you have cut yourself off at the roots. You're like Jeremiah 17 describes, a shrub in the desert. And whenever any heat comes, like a fight with your spouse, or like the loss of your job, or like traffic, you're blown around like a tumbleweed. And things control you. There's no peace. Read the Bible. Have God speak to you through His written word. That's what it is. Pray to God. Enter His throne room with all your guilt, your fear, your failures, your weaknesses your desires, your gratitude. Pray to God. Enter His throne room. Worship with His people on His day. Worship Him. Pray with others on His day. Sing with others. Read the Word with others. Others, 
hear the Bible preached. The Word of God goes out through preaching and is applied to your heart through preaching. And it is the means that God has designed and God has ordained where His Spirit comes and ministers to His people through the preaching of His Word. And we have to be under it. It searches our heart. It uncovers our heart. Convicts our heart. Encourages our heart. Fellowship with God's people. Develop relationships. Give and receive comfortable and uncomfortable love from God's people. Grace to you, Paul says. Paul wants them to know the grace of God. In fact, the very last words of this letter are, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And peace from God. This is not peace with God, again. Paul's not talking about salvation, but this is a sweet quietness in Christ. Peace from God. It is a sweet, calm, a sweet quietness in Christ. And that peace is the result of grace. If you are experiencing the grace of God, you are at peace, aren't you? If you are experiencing the grace of God, you are at peace. It flows from the favor of God, the undeserved, overboard, spoiling love of God for His people. It surpasses understanding. It guards your heart. Guards your mind. Keeps you at peace in Christ. And that same grace and peace, Paul prays it for the Philippians. And I would pray it for you. In conclusion... Read these two verses with me again. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me close with these potentially searching questions. And I'd just like to leave them When you read Philippians 1 and 2, let your eyes fall on this text. Are you in this greeting? Are you in here? Can you you identify? Can you find yourself? More pointedly, are you a saint? Are you... In Christ? Is God your Father? 
I know he's the Father. Paul says, our Father. Is he your Father? And finally, is Jesus Christ your Lord? He became our Lord when we trusted him and believed that he came and lived perfectly and suffered and died and rose from the dead in our place, in the place of sinners, so that I could be reconciled to God. Is Jesus your Lord? Is God your Father? Are you in Christ? Are you a saint today? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for inspiring Paul to write this letter to the Philippians. And we are, I hope many of us are excited to read this book and to learn from this book. And already here in this greeting, God, would you apply this to our hearts? God, help us with the task of examining ourselves and considering whether or not this is who we are and what might need to change. What will we do in response to your word? The worst thing that could happen, God, would be for your word to go out and for us to just not respond. So, God, if we're tempted to do that or distracted to not do that, would you come and would you do a work in some of us like you did in Lydia's heart? Would you open us to your word and open us to hear your truth? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.